Let's get rolling. We're going to jump right in today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As we've been progressing through this, we've been getting to the point of dealing with certain characteristics inside of what a believer should look like. We see in Romans chapter 8, it says, for To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And the reason for that, the carnal mind is in enmity against God. That means it is in an all-out warfare against the things of God. Do you realize your mind does not like to cooperate with the things that God wants you to cooperate with? You know what else doesn't? Your body. Your body is controlled by your mind, or at least it should be. We could question that with some folk, but it should be. And the thing is, is that what you see when you look in the mirror does not like to go with the things that God wants to do. It is an enmity with it, which means we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to control that sucker. Put that thing into submission. To crucify your flesh. You know what we don't like to do? We don't like to control that sucker. To put that thing in submission or to crucify the flesh. Because it doesn't feel good. And because of that, we have now a new doctrine that is just running rampant in the church today of if it feels good, do it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Hey, pop quiz, how many thoughts should you bring in to the captivity of Christ? It's every one. It's all of them. That means, what if you have good thoughts? Yeah, they should be obedient. So as an example of that, you know, you may wake up one day and say, you know what, I just need to empty my bank account and give it to some foreign missionary. Is that a good thing? Sure. Right? We're doing the work of the gospel. However, what if your rent's due? In other words, you better be led by the Spirit in that. Don't, don't, don't be crazy. That's what I'm getting at. It's like every thought needs to be captive. We need to know exactly why it is we think and believe what we do. And so as we've gone through this, we've looked at these four fundamental questions. Who is God? Who am I in relationship to God? How do I worship Him? And who my enemy is. And we've been in that last part for a while because we think spiritual warfare, we think of this arm wrestling match going on between Jesus and the devil and trying to figure out who's going to come out on top. The good news is the enemy has been defeated. The bad news is we apparently didn't get the message. And the rest of the church didn't either. Because we don't walk around as if, oh, wait a minute. You mean I don't have to deal with this? No, you have to deal with it. You just have overcome it. And because you don't recognize what you have done or who you are, you will not walk in that victory. You will not walk in that strength. You will not walk with this, forgive the term, arrogance as if no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. Because that literally means that none of them will. But we walk around defeated. Why do we do that? Because we don't understand how the enemy moves. We broke this last few parts down in who he is, what his name is, what he looks like, just to try to be accurate, biblically, and leave the cultural stuff out of the equation. It's kind of like, it's just a hot mess right now in the church because we assume a bunch of things. We think we know what hell looks like. We think we know what the devil looks like. We think we know what angels look like. We think we know all this stuff. And the description in the Bible, do not make cute cards. They just don't. These are freaky looking things. I think you, did you send me something on Facebook about if you put a biblical angel up on a tree? There's this freaky looking thing. Nothing says Merry Christmas like that. Kids come down all excited and look up at that. They don't want their presents after that. They're out, which is not a terrible idea now that I think about this. We'll just wrap some empty boxes. Nobody's opening nothing like, oh, the angels brought it. Then I'm out. I don't want it. But, but, I mean, the thing is, it's like we don't think biblically. We, we just think culturally of what we've heard and what we, what we think we know. And because of that, we've got all these misnomers like, who's the king of hell? Ask anybody. It's Lucifer. No, he's not. He's not even there yet. He's going there. He hadn't made it. The king of hell is God himself. That's weird. Well, God is over everything. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we've realized that how the enemy attacks is through the mind. It always starts there. Every single time, there is no exception because the word wiles means methodos. It's this throwing of a stone or a ball time and time and time again until he finally breaks through. He's able to enter in and get you off kilter. And as I showed you, is that there's three phases to this. We've been focused on the first. The first way that the enemy moves is through an individual. Individually, we are in warfare. We are being attacked by the enemy. You have good thoughts. You have bad thoughts. You have godly thoughts. You have ungodly thoughts. Do you realize that not all of those come from the devil? Of course not. Some of them is just your own debased mind. But they are coming. And in order to get to a group, he's got to start with an individual. And that individual will begin to affect those in the group because that's the next phase as he goes from the individual to the group. It may be more than one. I have seen these things happen, and this is why I'm talking about this, because we don't recognize it. But when you, it's, it's no different than if you've been a, a diesel mechanic. I'll use that as an example. I have a friend of mine whose father-in-law has been a diesel mechanic for 40 years. He's so good that as you pull your truck into a shop, because he can hear it, he can tell you exactly what's wrong with it. I can barely put fuel on the dumb thing. But, but it's like he recognizes it. So when you've been doing what I have done for the last 20 years, you begin to recognize these things happening very early on because I've seen it. And I have watched an individual, and this is what blew my mind, and this is how I realized this is deeper than anything I even realized back then. A group of individuals that did not come together to come up with an idea that caused a bunch of problems, all on their own came up with this individually, and together they made a big, massive problem. It wasn't like one person was just riling up the group. That was interesting to me the first time I saw that happen. I've seen it happen several times. But from the group part, you get to the area. In other words, and we'll break into this over the next couple of weeks. Because nothing says Christmas like talking about the devil. But, anyway. (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that one. but (laughs) But, but the thing is, is like, we've got to understand this. We've got to get this because we are under attack. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the attacks of the enemy. The way that he attacks you. He says to put on the armor of God. The whole armor, not part of it. That implies that you aren't born with it. It is your responsibility to put it on. And it also implies you might be able to take it off. All of which are bad ideas. And what we have to realize, and this is what we don't think about, is that this passage and way the enemy attacks is not exclusive to believers. He attacks every human being the same way. We talk about the mental health crisis that we have in America right now. Ironically, the greatest country in the world, you have more available to you than anywhere else in the world, and yet we're sad. No, we're spoiled is what it is. But yet, we wonder why this is. Why is it up here? Why is it if somebody can be a perfectly healthy human being but have mental issues, and I'm not talking about medical issues, but just be depressed or, or under oppression or have anxiety or whatever the case may be, and yet they can't function as a normal human in, in the real world. Because there's something to this spiritual that is beyond anything that we recognize, and it's not exclusive to the church. Because the enemy is going out attacking every individual in their minds. It's what you do with it. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not only do we have the tools necessary to stop it, we also have the knowledge necessary to stand up against it, and all the resources have been provided for us. What are we going to do with it? I say we put it on. That's just me, though. So when we talk about this attack, I want you to see this. Now, we're going to recap a little bit, but we're going to go into a deeper thing today. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, you all know this passage. It says, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you should not eat it, nor should you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, there are three things that just happened here, and we've never talked about this. If you'll leave this up for a minute. The first thing that the enemy did is he questioned God's truth. Did he say that? Did God say that? 
The second part is he denies God's truth. And the third part is he changes God's truth. Now think about that for a minute. How that applies in our lives. Because God's word is truth. And what he has said reigns supreme. So in other words, if you want to believe that there's 746 genders, it doesn't matter because God said there's two. So you go believe what you want, but, but this is what God said. It's very simple. It's kind of cut and dry. He's even given us visual clues that gives it away. You don't even have to read the Bible. That's a debased mind, y'all. But here's the thing. He questions God's truth. Then he denies God's truth. And then he changes God's truth. Every area of life, we can, you, I guarantee you, you watch that pattern. Because if he can first get you to question it, he questioneth, thus you question it, then he will deny it. Well, that's not what the Bible says. How does he move? Sometimes it's through other preachers, other friends. Oh, I know that's what God said, but that's not what he meant. Let me tell you what he meant. He questions it, he denies it, and then he'll change it into something new. How do we know? Because I shared with you guys stories of where this has happened. And if you think about it, in your own life, you have seen it happen to perhaps loved ones or friends around you, and maybe even yourself. Has anybody in here ever believed something that is not doctrinally accurate? In other words, it's not scriptural? Besides me, why am I the only one raising my hand? Okay, thank you, y'all. Don't leave me hanging here. Appreciate that. Because at some point, you believe something that was wrong, and you either started there or you got there. But eventually, correction came. And what was the difference? Suddenly, I guarded my mind with truth. You guys see the difference? See, this is the key. We have to be on guard. But we're not. We're lethargic. Because we are comfortable. I told you guys stories last week about a guy named Tony Merkel and a guy named Zachary King about physical things where demonists and, and witches and warlocks, and I know that sounds weird, but I mean, these are literal things that are out there in the world. We'd like to pretend they don't exist. They exist. I had a friend of mine that was a pastor in Independence, Kansas, and they had a uh, Halloween thing that went there every year. It was called Neowalla, and for whatever reason, thousands of people would come into this area. Independence, Kansas is like seven, eight, maybe 10,000. It's actually a really nice little town if you ever get a chance to drive through it, um, but it's in Kansas, so avoid that part, but anyway, maybe get in a helicopter and just land there for a few hours and then go home, but anyway, the Neowalla, which is Halloween spelled backwards, and for whatever reason, this has become a, a center where you get these witches and warlocks that come in from all over the place and do weird stuff, but it's a big celebration in the town. And like, this is a, a big, this is a real thing. This is a big deal. We learned during the, uh, the first Trump election, some of the stuff that leaked out that there are occultist practices that are going on in politics. Who would have guessed, right? In other words, you have to be kind of blind to not see it, but we choose not to see it. It's kind of like when you talk about a government being corrupt or they're doing nefarious things with the intent to cause harm and a lot of people are like i don't want to believe that well i don't care what you want to believe it's kind of like i had a, a professor at at rhema where i went to school and he wrote a book he was teaching through the class of revelation and or, well the class was on revelation the book of revelation he had two books called breaking the bread of revelation part one and part two and there was this theory it's called this pro uh, prophetic historic theory where basically the seven churches seem to correspond with seven time periods in history. And if those churches were in any other order, it wouldn't work, but it's interesting how that lines up, right? Now, it's a theory because the Bible doesn't clearly define that. It is interesting. There are some problems with it, but it's like, it's a theory. But here's where the problem lies, okay? Is that true or not true? Well, I don't know, right? Could be, couldn't be, don't frankly care. But his argument against this was simply this. I don't believe that that is accurate because if it's true, then you and I are now living in the Laodicean age. And do you really want to be living in that age? Anybody catch that? Any logical problems with this? It's like, who cares if you want to live in that age? That doesn't make any difference. 
Like, it's idiotic. But that's the type of arguments that we and the body of Christ make, and that is how we try to overcome some of this other stuff. We're like, well, that's idiotic. He's a super nice guy. That's a terrible argument. You see, this is where we have to realize that it's okay to think. When we talk about the things that have enemy, we think sinister. We think scary movies. We think the exorcist. And that stuff can be true. There's stuff out there. You've done some deliverance ministry stuff, haven't you? Yeah, you see some weird stuff, don't you? Yeah, weird stuff. Like no like floating bodies and spinning heads and sometimes projectile vomit. But you see some weird stuff. You see a spinning head, you kind of got big-eyed when I said, okay, I hope not. But you see some weird stuff. Yeah, I'm, I guarantee you. In fact, we all have. I know Jim has dealt with this stuff. I've dealt with it. A lot of people have. And it's like, we say it's weird, but it's really not. It's just weird because we don't encounter it very often. And most of you are like, I'm okay with that. And I get that, okay? But the thing is, is like, this stuff is going on. And that's what we think of in our mind. What we don't think of is what transpired to get to that point. Because what if we, before we get to the whole floating, spinning head, projectile vomiting thing, we could go back in time and stop it before it ever got started? How do we do that? Starts up here. See, some of these less sinister ideas that have crept inside of the church through time is that God is a woman. That's a popular one today. Or we can pray to Mary, or we can pray to the saints, or if we light these candles, or we baptize this child, or we do these different things. Not even a child, if you get baptized, you're in. We've got all of these different penances that you can do, or these different um, things that you can do. Take communion, go through a, a confirmation, you can do this, that, or the other thing. It's okay. Or even my new favorite one is like, don't worry, God died for everybody. That's what the Bible says everybody's in. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter who you call God. It's all the same guy, just we call him different names. Where do you think that idea came from? It came from some really, really bad people. And I, I showed you these books, like this one here, written by a friend of mine that basically lives in that idea. That God is not retributive, he's restorative, he's out to restore. I showed you this book written in 1988 that basically spells out everything that we're seeing today. 1988. I mean, look at that guy. Can you see that picture? That's a handsome devil right there. That's a guy that studies, isn't it? For those of you who can see the, the picture. That's not a guy that's just going around making stuff up. Why am I telling you all of this? Because this is here now. But what if we could go back in time? The Rod Bells, the Brian Zons, the Jackson Bears of the world. What if immediately when that first idea crept into their mind, they took that thought captive and said, let me examine Scripture to see if what was said is true. We've all had bad ideas. Some of those are natural bad ideas. Like, hey, push the trampoline over to the side of the house, jump off the roof on the trampoline, see how high you can go. You know how high you go? Not high. You hit the ground, and it hurts a lot. Seemed like a great idea at the time. But some of these are spiritual ideas that have eternal consequences. Let's look at Luke chapter 8. I want to show you something here. We've talked about this. This is the parable of the soils. We're going to start in verse 4. Luke chapter 8, verse 4 says, When a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him in every city, he spoke a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on a rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and, and with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground and sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he, heard these things, or when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So who's he talking to? Whoever can hear him. The disciple said, what does this parable mean? Now, isn't that nice how they said that? What does this parable mean? Most of us would be like, what are you talking about? Like, here they are going along, and he starts talking about throwing seeds and all of that. And he said, to you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and the rest have been given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now let's leave this up here for just a minute. See, there are four soils, and we've talked about this. The first one is very clear. They hear the word, 
they like the word, the seed is planted, and what takes place? The devil comes to take the seed from their heart, so what doesn't happen? They believe and be saved. So in other words, in that moment, apparently you didn't close the deal. They've apparently walked away or something. Something has transpired. But the next three I have said, it is of my opinion that these are the born-again folks. They believe it. But something happens. We see that the purpose, I mean, anytime you plant a seed, you're expecting what? A harvest, right? You don't plant nothing and be like, I hope this stays dirt. Everybody who's got a garden is not doing all that time expecting nothing in return. So when they're planting the seed, they're expecting a return. But what takes place? Well, the first one we see, unless they believe, they be saved. That's pretty cut and dry. But the next one, it appears to me, you can disagree with me. If you want to be wrong, that's your opinion, okay? The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they have no root, who believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. Who tempts them? It's the enemy. What tempts them? Whatever comes across their path. In other words, they're, they have no root. They're not grounded in the word, so they don't know how to take every thought captive to the word of Christ, Right? They're, they're immature, they're young, whatever the case may be. And so because of that, because they're apparently there's nobody there to help guide them, something is going on that they don't bring any fruit. So what had taken place? Somehow the enemy got in. But look at the next one. The ones who fell among the thorns are those when they heard they go out and are choked with what? Cares, riches, and pleasures of life. Well, do we see that transpire anywhere else in Scripture? We do, as a matter of fact. We see a rich man come to Jesus, and what did Jesus say? Sell everything. And what's he say? I don't like that idea. Jesus didn't chase him down and beg him. Jesus said, well, all right. Easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which isn't what you probably think it is, but I'm not going there today. You know, that part happens, but what happens also? When Jesus attempted in Matthew 4, what's he say? He takes him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, you see all this? Or I guess on the high mountain. I'll give it all to you. You'll bow down and worship me. Sounds like a pretty good thing. Jesus is tempted just like we are. And what's he do? He knew the word. He overcame those temptations every single time with the word. These guys apparently were not rooted or grounded or somebody wasn't doing what they're supposed to do because they didn't know how to overcome this. The cares and riches and pleasures of life. Because in their mind, he'd be like, well, if I had more money, I could give more to the kingdom. So this riches thing sounds pretty good. Or the pleasures of life, like, you know, if I had a boat, I could take some downtime and just be me and the Lord out on the lake every Sunday from 10 to 4. Right? I mean, we come up with all these off-the-wall stupid ideas and we justify it in our mind. Those are the exact things that this is talking about. One of them does a pretty good job, right? And that's all of us in this room, right? There you go, okay. But my point being is this. These were not arbitrary. These did not come about on their own. We don't think of it in the sense as what caused them to not bring any fruit to maturity. Do you realize that the majority of the body of Christ today will fall in those two camps? And a good portion will fall into the first, and a small portion will fall into the last. Because once we're in, we're like, well, we're in. My job now is to consume and to learn and to grow. To do what? Hopefully, bring some fruit to maturity. But we don't. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to show you another passage here. Remember, we're looking at how the enemy moves on individuals. That's what we're looking. I'm showing you some different passages because I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, If anyone has caused grief... And he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This seems to imply that there's somebody specific that Paul is addressing here. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Now stop. Somebody has caused grief. What does Paul say? Y'all need to forgive and comfort. That's not forgive and forget. That's forgive and comfort. Anybody ever wronged you? Done you wrong in some way? The forgiving part is like, okay, I can let this go. But hugging them after? Maybe not so much. If you're like me, you probably just don't want to hug in general, even if we're best friends and all that. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. 
For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, this forgiveness, showing your love for him even though he's wronged you, is a test that Paul is putting out there for them to see if they'll be obedient. Because you know why? It's easy to obey in things that are easy and fun. It's like you said, hey, Chris, I've got a piece of cheesecake here. I double-dog dare you to eat it. Sign me up, baby. Now, sign me up for a marathon, and we got a problem. Verse 10, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I wish that last part were true. We are ignorant of his devices. It's because we don't know the word. But why was that forgiveness so critical? Because Satan will take advantage of us, the ones who didn't forgive, not the one who wronged. Look at that. That's not how we think, is it? We're always thinking, oh, that person did me wrong, did something, whatever the case may be. But it's us that is going to have the problem. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So in other words, he has led these people. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What might be corrupted? Their mind. From what? The simplicity that is Christ. How hard is it to become born again? It's not hard. You don't even have to pray the sinner's prayer. Did you know that? That's because there isn't one. We came up with that. Look at us. Verse 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, somebody may come if your mind has been corrupted from the simplicity of Christ and come up with some off-the-wall crazy idea, you might put up with it. And Paul is concerned. He says, I fear. Just like the serpent CV. Well, what did he do? He questioned God's word. Changed God's word. He went against everything on it, didn't he? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 22. Because this one makes more sense to us. I read this last week. Verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captives how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, this is interesting. Because what did Judas do for the last three years? Saw everything Jesus did. He was there from the moment he was baptized, if not before, up until this point. Because you had to be in order to be an apostle, which he was. And yet, all of that, somehow, he was separated, in a sense, that Satan was able, it says he enters him. You can come up with your own theory for what that means, but here's the bottom line. Did that happen overnight? No. In fact, if you watch, he would constantly argue with Jesus about things. And where was he getting this stuff? I'm sorry, if you get the opportunity to follow Jesus around on this earth, and you're seeing all of those things, would you question anything he said? Like, oh, you remember that dead person that he brought back to life? I stopped questioning what you say at that point. What you say goes. I'm in. You've convinced me. But yet he didn't. Isn't that interesting? That it seems as if, no matter what he saw, he was still able to be deceived by Satan. And then we've got Acts chapter 5, verse 1. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. He kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart the light of the Holy Spirit? Who filled his heart? What does that mean? This heart and mind thing can be interchangeable. In other words, he was tempted and he went along with it. You guys see how this is working. That's what I'm wanting you to pick up on. He's, this is constant. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he's showing them. He's explaining this is what's going to happen. And what does Peter do? He takes him aside and he rebukes him. Hey, just point of reference, don't rebuke Jesus. Not going to end well for you. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, if you were there in that moment, you can understand. You love this guy. You have no idea that this is what's going to happen. You don't know how this is going to play out. Should he have known? 
Yes. In fact, the point is that Jesus told them, hey, I'm going to go. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. They're going to bury me, but I'll be back. That's all you need to hear, right? Simple as that. Would any of you question anything he was saying? Yes, all of you would. We all would. And Peter doesn't like it. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Who gave him that idea? He didn't address Peter. I mean, again, do you guys, this guy watched Jesus heal people. He fed 5,000 people with virtually no. I mean, what more do you need to see? At what point do you say, okay, Jesus, whatever you say goes, I'm in, I get it. But we don't. He didn't either. Look at Luke 22. Here's another one. Verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Was that true? Nope. Had he convinced himself of the lie? Yep. So of all of us in this room, every one of us, I guarantee, would say we would die for our faith. The day may come where we get to prove that true. Then he said, verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Jesus knew it wasn't true, but who was asking for him? That he might sift him as wheat. What happens when you sift something? When you're sifting wheat, they're sifting the wheat from the tares, trying to separate him from the group. Now, I've heard this argument. It's because Satan knew what Peter was going to do. Was he the greatest of the apostles, at least early on? Make that argument. Who stood up on Acts chapter 2? Here's the other thing you need to think about. Satan's not all-knowing. Satan just doesn't like Peter. Right? Never forget that. He does not know what the future holds for you. That's a mistake that we have made. I've heard this said before. We've, we've done missions work and stuff like that in different times, and somebody will get sick or whatever, and they say, oh, that's the enemy attacking me because he knows what, what I'm going to accomplish here. I'm like, no, he does not. He just doesn't like you. And if you keep talking like that, I may not either. I'm just kidding. But... Who is trying to sip? So we see how the enemy is interacting. But has he at any point in time showed up and forcefully said, I'm here, I'm going to kill you now? No. This is all starting up here, getting you to think wrong. And then because you think wrong, you will act wrong. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are of the Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto the end, and I will give you the crown of life. So the devil's going to throw them in jail. So what happens? The red-horned dude shows up with his handcuffs and says, you ought to come with me. Obviously not. What takes place? A group of people are going to show up and arrest them and throw them in prison. So there's something going on behind the scenes. But who's getting the blame or credit in this case? It's the devil. So what I'm getting at is what we think of how the enemy attacks individually, these big preposterous things, is not the case. How it is, is he gets individuals to begin to believe something. And those individuals take those ideas and become a group. And eventually he'll get power over an entire area if you let him. So how do we stop that? We go back to the beginning. Guys get it? Now look at Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 12 says, For by, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So, how do you do that? Through reason of use. You begin to recognize. You guys remember what I told you a long time ago? When somebody gives their life to Christ and they're, they're coming under my tutelage, in other words, I'm beginning to disciple them. What I try to do with these people is I spend time with them. You know, we don't have a discipleship program. We just kind of hang out and talk. And the number one thing I want to see as they're beginning to grow in their walk with Christ is when they see or hear something that is not right, 
They may not know why it's wrong, but a red flag goes up in their mind, and they're like, something seems off with that. Sometimes I'll, t- I'll t- test them. I'll say something completely off the wall to see if they catch it. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. But the bottom line is we want to see through use to discern good and evil. Do we need to do that? Absolutely. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know what reasonable service means? That's not too much to ask. But don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, okay? You can be like the world, and he says, don't do that. Or you're transformed. How do you do that? You renew your mind. Why? That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, it's not like we're waiting for stars to spell out, God, what do you have for me next? You see, we have all these bad ideas, and we're always chasing the future, but we never stop and say, what if I just start with the basics? The renewing of my mind, taking every thought captive, and doing what Acts 17.11 says. That no matter what I hear from a pulpit, or whatever idea pops in my head, I go to and search the scriptures daily to see if those things which were said are true. See, too much of the church is like this. Isaiah chapter 30. Verse 8. It says, Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come, forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people. We're talking about the children of Israel. Lying children. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. That's where we want to create the God in our own image. Don't tell us that. We don't want to hear that. This is the Old Testament. Tell the prophets to quit saying all those bad things. Those are scary. We don't like those. We don't want to deal with those. That law of God is good for you. but It's not good for me. I mean, this is the same stuff we're dealing with today. You guys can take these and realize, just listen around. I mean, watch church videos. If you're, if you, I mean, because of algorithms, I get all of these things. But, as you know, do you know how many emails and things I get? It's like, how to grow your church and, and double your church in 24 months. As if that's our goal. You know? There's a latest one was like, how we took our church from five to 500 in five years. I those fives. Isn't that a coincidence? It must be God. It's like if you were around in the 90s, you guys remember every time it's like a word of the Lord came, it always rhymed. You guys remember that? Is it just me? Like, it was just crazy times. I don't know. It's like Dr. Seuss or something. I don't know. But, but the thing is, it's like, what's our goal here? Is it to get people to come to church? No, that's not our goal. This isn't a social club. We're not trying to up our membership. We don't charge enough to up our membership. That'd be wonderful if we did. That's a joke, in case you're wondering. But 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge you therefore before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would judge the living and the dead, is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. He's talking to Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction to the work, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. You mean basically what we just read in Isaiah 30 is what Paul is telling Timothy and what we see today. And where does it all start? They get a bad idea and they want to go find somebody that will tell them it's, it's okay, that's how God made you. You guys get this? You see, this is where we are. We have got to understand. We think nefarious of how the enemy moves, but he doesn't start there. It can end there, but it's not where it starts. If he showed up with red horns and a pitchfork in your living room when you got home today and said, listen, I need you to do some stuff for me, every one of us would be like, I don't think so. Get thee behind me, Satan. We'd be, we'd be all over that. But when you start to get these bad ideas... I think so-and-so said something about me. I don't think that person likes me. I've watched churches split over, over idiotic things, and you'll see more of this here in a minute. In John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus dealing with the uh, Pharisees, and we'll talk more about this next week. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father and you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil, 
and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks of it from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So what did he just say to the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day? You're of your father the devil. That's a pretty bold claim. I'm sure they loved hearing that. But I mean, he's calling them out because what is their source? Obviously, the devil, Jesus said it. It doesn't come from anywhere else. So in other words, you mean religious people, even good ones? Because you guys realize these guys were obedient to the laws of Moses. They were in covenant with God. Can lead you astray? You better believe it. In Proverbs chapter 6, I want you to see this. Because when we think, when we think the works of the devil, what do we think? We think drugs, alcohol, prostitution, fornication, murder, all of that kind of stuff. Let's look at something here. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Okay, is it fair that if the Lord hates it, we should too? Okay. Yes, seven are abomination to him. So this is pretty bad. Abomination, not a good word. We don't use it a lot, but it's not good. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, we get that one. That makes sense to me. A heart that devises wicked plans. Okay. Feet that are swift to run into evil. Okay. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. Would we agree that one of those is really bad, two of those are, could be bad, three of those like, what's the big deal? And God said he hates those. They're an abomination to him. We would not think of someone who sows discord among the brethren as being an abomination before the Lord. What does that mean? That means gossip. Somebody's out there trying to cause problems. Happens in every church in America. It's happening in this town right now. It's probably happening in every town right now. In fact, most churches, and one of the things I didn't tell you, but I will talk about this more, is that Zachary King, who was an ex-warlock and all of that, strategically would place people in churches to split them up. And the methods that he would do that was gossip-related. Isn't that interesting? Now, this is a man who wasn't versed in Scripture, so he, you know, if he's making it up, he did a good job. But these are things that we would not think of. A lying tongue, is lying really that big of a deal? We all lie a little. I mean, have you ever filed your taxes? Not a big deal. Romans chapter 1. Verse 28. Now we know Romans 1. What's the big Romans? Romans 1, baby. What are we talking about? Homosexuality. Okay? Let's look at this. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to the debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. This is bad. Okay? God has turned them over. I talked about this Wednesday night. That this is a sign of a judgment on a people group. God has turned them over to the debased mind because they didn't recognize Him. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. They're backbiters. They're haters of God. They're violent. They're proud. They're boasters, they're inventor of all things, they're disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now listen, Paul just said that these people deserve death, and the majority of that list we'd be like, it's not that big a deal. Because some of us have done these things recently the proud part or perhaps we've deceived somebody or we're whispering behind somebody's back we're backbiters whatever the case i mean you guys see this but how does that happen it starts up here like we people in this room at one point or another i guarantee you have been used by the enemy to cause problems and don't even realize it because we're not on guard we get our feelings hurt and we want to make sure everybody knows because we're looking for vindication. I'll show them. I'll make sure nobody listens to them anymore. Sometimes that's the pastor. Sometimes it's people in the church. I mean, whatever it is, somebody gets their feelings hurt. That's immediately where they go. These things are deserving of death and those who approve of them is the same. Yet most of these, if we were to list this out from order of worst to best, most of this we'd be like, well, that's not deserving of death, but you really shouldn't do it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 11 says, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, 
having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. It seems like Paul is telling Timothy, this is not good. So much so that he devoted part of his letter to dealing with this issue, this gossiping issue. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, it says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those who entrusted you, but being example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will, not, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Those are words we don't like to hear. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, we, we hear this all the time. But how are these people being devoured? It's that lack of a younger person submitting to the older person, the overseer, the one who is discipling them. That's really what's going on. It's where they begin to get this idea that I don't need them. Oh, I know what I'm doing and all of that. Do you guys realize that all of us in this room should be being discipled by somebody? And do you realize that at some point all of us in this room should be discipling somebody? And do you realize that most of us in this room have never done that? Because what is a disciple? It's somebody, I mean, if you're looking at Jesus, what did they do? They did everything together for three years. And every day, Jesus took the things that were around them and said, you see that rock? You see that tree? You see that bush? Whatever. He's always using something to teach them. Did they like what he had to say? No, he had to rebuke Peter. But it was true. You see, that's where we are. But what do we do? He's looking for whom he may devour. That means he can't do it unless you let him. How do you redo it? You resist him. You stay steadfast in the face. Let's look at one more. James chapter 1, verse 21. It says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks the uh, perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted, from the world. Now don't get confused when it says, well, I gotta go talk to some widows or orphans. Totally different thing. These were people at that time point that had no way of taking care of themselves in that culture. But what are you to do? You keep yourself unspotted from the world. How? To be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Because when you only hear and you do not act upon those things which you have heard, you do not put them into practice then you have deceived yourself thinking that you are doing something. Do you guys realize that there's a difference between going to the gym and going to the gym? Because you can go to the gym, and if the gym has a snack bar, and you hang out there the whole time, and consume all the snacks, you technically went to the gym. Would that pass? If you don't ask me any further questions than that, Right? When I was in high school, I had a youth pastor to seem to think that everybody needed to get up between 5 and 6 a.m. to pray and to read the Word. So you know what I did to overcome that? I named my, Bible, or my bed the Word. And when he would call, because he would check up on us, I said, I can't talk, I'm in the Word. Pretty smart, right? Who's impressed? Come on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. You're just upset you didn't think of it. That's all it is, okay? But the thing, he bought it. I mean, it worked, you know. And he accepted that. There's a difference. Because you can hear everything. And you can claim you believe the truth of Scripture. 
But if you don't act like it, if your world is not revolving around it, if you are not impacted by the truths of there and it affects your behavior, you are simply hearing it and not doing it. When you hear somebody sick, if you don't go and lay hands on them when you have that opportunity, that means you don't believe it. Because if you believed it, you would do it. Don't worry about the results. Be obedient to what it says. You guys get that? If you believe that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, you would probably be a lot more adamant about doing that, preaching the gospel to all creatures, if you believed it. You see, the way we act corresponds directly with what we believe is true. Faith comes by hearing and accepting what you hear is truth. When you believe it's true, it will impact the way that you believe. If you believe that an airplane and the law of lift exist, and that you can get up in the air, you'll have no problem stepping on it. But if you don't believe in that, you ain't getting on that plane. It's just reality. You see, this is where we are. The enemy has crept in with a bunch of bad thoughts. We've allowed it to happen. He can't impact a group, whether, and I'll get into the group part next week, but he can't impact that without first getting a bunch of individuals off kilter, not believing what Scripture said. He will deny that truth. He will question it. He will change it. You guys see that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that we may accept it as truth and we may know that you are reigning in our lives. Lord, that we are wise enough that when the enemy comes and begins to attempt to devour us, that we will discern the reality of what's going on, take those thoughts captive and overcome them with the truth of Scripture. That the world that we live in, Lord, is not guided by feelings and emotions and things in the moment. It is guided by the reality of who you are and what you've said. And so because of that, Lord, we know who we are in relationship with you and that you have made us overcomers and, and we have nothing to fear. And so, Lord, because of that, we will go into this world and we will live our lives as such. We will live our lives in a way that brings glory to your name every single day. At our homes, in our jobs, wherever we are, as we get together with family this week, Lord, that we will be a beacon of light everywhere we go because of what you have done. And so, Lord, we give you the glory and honor. And I thank you that you are opening doors of opportunity for us to live this truth in a way that is real to the world, that they may see the love that you have poured on us and they may experience the power of your spirit. That you be glorified in everything that we say and do, Lord. We just give you the glory and thank you for all things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We will see you Sunday.